Turns out, a delightfully clean home can make for a delightful start to the day. At Mrs. Myers, everything they make is inspired by the garden. With plant-derived and other thoughtfully chosen ingredients, their cleaning products smell like a dream and work like the Dickens, leaving your home sparkly clean and your to-do list tackled in no time. Goodness, there's no better feeling than that. Mrs. Myers, rooted in goodness. Visit MrsMyers.com today. Hello everybody, I'm Tom Clarkson and welcome to a very special episode of Beyond the Grid. Yes, if you take out the promos and trailers, this is the 100th episode of our show. We kicked things off back in July 2018 with guest number one, Lewis Hamilton. And here we are, just over two years later, celebrating our ton. It's a proud moment for everyone on our team and we hope you've enjoyed the shows as much as we have. And who better to celebrate this historic milestone with than Formula One's biggest cheese? I'm delighted to say that my guest this week is Formula One CEO and Executive Chairman Chase Carey. Chase has been in the headlines recently following news that he'll step back at the end of the year and Stefano Domenicali, the former Ferrari team principal, will take over the reins of Formula One. Chase will continue in a non-executive role from January 2021, but now seems a good time to reflect on Chase's four years in charge. And in this chat, he really opens up about all of the challenges he's faced. In a previous life, he was the right-hand man of media mogul Rupert Murdoch. Yet on January the 1st, 2017, he became the boss of Formula One and faced a heap of challenges as he set about changing the sport's modus operandi. 2017 and 18 were the foundation years. The sport then saw a surge in growth during 2019, and the graph was set for more of the same in 2020. Until, that is, COVID-19 moved the goalposts for everybody. Yet, despite the difficulties presented by a COVID world, 2020 has still witnessed some of the most fundamental changes the sport has ever seen. A new Concord Agreement has been signed by all the parties, giving a more even spread of revenue. New technical and financial regs have been agreed as well, and we've even had a full calendar of racing. We discuss it all and much more. Chase and I caught up at a distance two days after the Eiffel Grand Prix, which saw Formula One return to the Nürburgring for the first time in seven years. We kicked things off by reflecting on 2020. It has been a tough year, you know, certainly challenges for everybody in the sport. But I think we do feel, you know, proud of really everybody involved, the teams, the FIA, really everybody working together to enable us to put on a season. I think we can feel proud of that, you know, really fans can engage with and uh, keeps the sport um, moving forward. We can't talk about the Nürburgring and not mention Lewis Hamilton, 91 Grand Prix victories. That's quite a tally. Now, look, he is... Uh, you know, he's an incredible champion, and uh, we look forward to, obviously, in the next few weeks, setting the record. Uh, but his, uh, his track record speaks for itself. You know, he is one of the great heroes of the sport. He will clearly go down as one of the great, great drivers of all time. And, you know, we're proud to have him, you know, at the forefront of our sport. And what about these old tracks that we've been going back to, like Nürburgring, 
Mugello wasn't on before. Then we're going to Imola, Turkey, Portimao, even the outer circuit of Bahrain we haven't been to before. Are you enjoying seeing Formula One going to these different tracks? I think it's great to be able to go to some of the great historic tracks of the sport, although we hadn't raced at Mugello before, because history really is such an important part of the sport. I mean, it, it is a big part of what uh, makes the sport special. So you know, we have, uh, you know, I guess there's a, to some degree, uh, an opportunity that came out of the challenges of this year to uh, take advantage of that and uh, provide us some great races. And do you think we're going to see some of these older tracks back on the calendar in 21? I think in 2021, it'll probably look, you know, a bit more like the calendar, you know, we planned for this year. You know, we are a global sport. I mean, the reality is this year we haven't really raced globally. We've largely raced in the European zone. So, you know, we want to get back to making sure we race. We have our races in the Americas. We have our races in Asia. That we have the races spread across the, the globe that, you know, is important to us as a global sport. And we have some great historic tracks that are obviously part of our calendar, tracks like Silverstone, Monza, Monaco, Spa. Um, so certainly historic European tracks are an important part of the, of the sport, but I think you'll see a more balanced set of uh, events across the globe on a 2021 calendar. Sadly, COVID-19's not going away, is it? I mean, how... How far down the road are you with the 21 calendar? You know, at this point, we are pretty close to having a calendar for 2021. We've got a couple issues to resolve. Clearly, we're later in the process because the issues around 2020, we've really only recently resolved. So all of those things have created delays in getting it out. But And we're going to plan for a 2021 calendar that, again, looks you know pretty much like a normal calendar, like the calendar we would have planned in January. Um, what we don't really know is what will be the state of COVID um, next year and how we navigate through it. You know, we're planning for events. We're planning to have fans. We're planning to have a season um, that I don't know that I'd say is normal, but certainly gets us back to normal, closer to normal, you know, on that track. We're talking in October. And can I take you back to March when you were giving your speech in the Melbourne paddock? on that Friday when you had to cancel the race. This is a race we always look forward to. Great fans here. Um, we're sorry not to have it, but it's been a very fluid situation. I think we've made the right decisions. We've worked well with our partners. I think we're all disappointed to not have it, but these are challenging times and I think we've made the decisions we have to make. Looking back, what was going through your head at the time? What were your emotions? Well, that was, everything was sort of spinning, realistically. I mean, I had been in, that was a Friday. I had been in Vietnam on Thursday. I had flown overnight into Melbourne. And really, during the flight, the world changed. We had the infection, the positive test um, in Melbourne. But other leagues and other events started to cancel in that window. I think the NBA was the first in the, in the United States. I hit the ground at 6 a.m. in Melbourne to really find a different world, and you know, then you know, it existed on Thursday night when I got on a plane in Vietnam. And so you were dealing with these issues real time. You know, we had fans, you know, lined up to enter the event and things were happening all around us. So we had to really quickly sort of on the fly decide what was the right thing. And I think safety, you know, um, as it has been, has to be priority one and uh, made the decision, you know, we did. And still didn't really have clarity to, um, cl certainly at that point, what the impact was going to be as you went down the road, you know, to, you know, on, on the subsequent months. It was clear probably a couple of the very immediate events were going to get canceled, but we were still planning, 
potentially to have races not that far down the road. But uh, obviously everything changed pretty quickly in the following days. How worried were you? You know, we're very concerned. You know, clearly the the financial implications um, are significant, you know, to us and the teams. But I think also there's the continuing to to grow the sport and engage the fans. I think not having a season, you know, we think, you know, would have really created unique challenges. And we had spent the three years leading into this year, you know, I've talked about 2017 and 18, building a foundation for the future, 2019, some really solid growth heading into 2020, expected further growth and to not have the sport in place, you know, I think really would have uh, been a step backwards from everything we had you know, been trying to achieve. And certainly we've had challenges this year, but I think we've been able to continue to maintain the momentum and continue to you know, push the sport forward. Chase, you've had a hell of a career at News Corp and Fox. Have you ever experienced anything like 2020 from a business point of view? during your career? No, I mean, quite simply, no. Um, you know, it's uh, made it, you know, within an individual entity, you've certainly, I've certainly dealt with crises and issues, but not something that, you know, really has affected everybody, you know, across the, across the board and across, you know, the globe. You have no visibility to planning. I mean, you have, a lot of times you have crises. I mean, I, you live through, people talk about the 08 finance, 2008 financial crisis, but once it happened, you sort of fairly quickly could at least sort of start to plan for how do you go forward. Certainly there are uncertainties, but this situation has such unique uncertainties and unique unknowns around it that uh, it, is, uh, it has really been you know, truly unique. How much has it taken its toll on you? You know, I think you, there's a wear and tear in this, but... Um, you know, you know, realistically, I guess I've always been one you'd put your head down and go forward. You know, I think it's, uh, there's a wear and tear on everybody. Look, we've, you know, we've had a very condensed calendar, you know, a lot of triple headers on top of each other. And so, you know, I think, you know, we recognize, certainly I recognize there's a wear and tear to, to everybody, but there's a wear and tear to everybody just in their daily life in this. There's a wear and tear to those who worry about their health. There's a wear and tear to those who worry about their jobs. You know, I don't think you can sort of personally think about your wear and tear because I think, you know, you know, really there are concerns that people have across the board, again, whether it's the disease or whether it's the impact of the various measures that have been put in place to deal with the disease. So I think you all sort of have to do your best and, you know, recognize we all got to do our part to fight through it. The timing of you stepping back a little bit at the end of this year. Why now? Going into this role, I was never going to sort of, my family stayed in the U.S. I've lived in the U.K. I was not going to live in the U.K. for the rest of my life, you know, with my family um, in the U.S. What I really wanted to do coming into it was sort of try and get Formula One on a track, you know, that somebody could take it forward uh, from there. And, you know, next year, my role as I look at it is really to help Stefano and the team here go forward. And uh, I think we were on that track. COVID obviously changed the timing to some degree. So I think in terms of planning, when I'd looked at it, we had always, I just sort of felt, again, what I said a minute ago, 2017, 18, build the foundation, 19 and 20, start to, you know, start to achieve some of the growth. I think we were on the, on the cusp of, uh, and we've put in place a lot of the things that are going to drive the future, uh, the Concord Agreement being put in place, cost caps, regulations, the cars for 2022. So I think we've sort of got a lot of the building blocks. I mean, there's still obviously a lot to be done, a lot of things to, to still be dealt with. But I think at this point in time, you know, we sort of 
have put up in place a lot of the building blocks, and it's sort of a good time for somebody to take and continue to, you know, to take it forward from there. Hopefully, we're you know, sort of at least emerging out of uh, co- out of the COVID you know, situation, or at least the depths of it. Clearly, there are uncertainties about next year, um, and there'll be issues to deal with it. So I don't, you know, I don't think any of us are pretending or assuming COVID goes away overnight. But I think we've learned how to deal with it. We've learned, you know, how to deal with the depths of it, and uh, and I think we'll be better plan, you know, better positioned to plan how to deal with that going through 2021. You've just listed new Concord Agreement, new regulations, all that kind of thing. What's your proudest achievement over the last four years? You know, I really don't, I guess I don't, I, I mean, I really generally look forward. I don't sort of look back and uh, and have a report card like that. I mean, you know, I guess what I, what you always want to feel is in, in anything you've, you know, you've done, you've, you've left the sport and business in a better place with a better future. And I think your ultimate success is going to be measured in some ways is measured by what happens after you're gone, not, you know, what you did while you were there. And, you know, real success is, you know, something that is on a good, you know, a business or a sport that's on a good track and uh, continues to grow and continues to get stronger. How tough was it to get every team to sign the Concord Agreement? This sport is a very, you know, unique beast at times. Um, You know, it is a sport that sort of, I think, historically seems to have a you know, divide and conquer every, you know, you know, every man for himself. And, you know, some degree, you know, some of that's good. You want, you know, competition breeds that. You want real competition. But we have tried to create a bit more of a sense of partnership, you know, you know, sort of compete on the track, but have a sense of partnership about how to grow it. And so some of the old habits that existed and the old style of operations um, that uh, manifested itself in the Concord Agreement, Created complexities, but at the end of the day, and I said all along, I think the, I think the teams generally agreed with the goals we laid out. You know, in terms of better competition, better action, healthier business, um, underdogs having a chance to win, healthier business models. In many ways, the, the 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 disagreements or the issues, you know, were therefore around the cor- around the edges, not around the corners. Now, look, everybody would always like more. But I think we tried to make sure what we did was look at it as what's right for the sport, which at the end of the day means what's right for fans. How tricky were Mercedes? I remember Toto Wolff being quite outspoken at the time of the British Grand Prix. <laughs> um, I'm probably not going to get no, into okay. individual description of the discussions. I think there's certain discussions that are appropriately private and, you know, and remain private between partners. So... Uh, I'll probably just leave it at that. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. Let's talk about Stefano Domenicali. Why Stefano? Well, I mean, first, I've had the privilege to get to know Stefano. He's on, you know, um, he's on the FIA single, you know, single seater commission, runs the single seater commission. And obviously knows many of the players in the sport predates me, but certainly you know he has got a track record that speaks for itself in the sport. We went through a, a very broad search, really looking at you know a complete range from A to Z uh, of 
of candidates. I came into this as an outsider, um, and I think there was some value in coming into the sport um, as an outsider because I think we felt it needed significant change and fresh perspectives and and a different set of perspectives. I think going forward now, what we felt was right, we want somebody who can maintain the momentum and continue to build on you know, what we think we've put in place to grow the sport. One of the important things Stefano brings is a deep knowledge of not just the sport and the competition on the track, but the players in the sport. And therefore, I think in many ways can hit the ground running in terms of taking things forward. I think Stefano also brings you know, a you know, sort of unique personality you know, to this that is somebody that has great respect and sometimes I feel like you sit in the you know, to this role, you're sitting at the eye of a storm with a lot of partners sort of circling around. And I think he brings a balance and, a, and a, sort of an even keeled personality to navigate through what at times can be very noisy you know, situations. So I think the combination of sort of unique expertise and experience, you know, with a personality, you know, that can navigate through the various dynamics that exist really make him ideally suited to this. Toto Wolff says that he had a few conversations and then he said that Ferrari didn't want him. Is that true? I'm not going to get into sort of who we, we, we talked to, a, we considered or at least went through a search of looking at a range of people across the board. I'm really not going to comment. I don't think it's actually appropriate to comment on who are those people and who did we consider. We only made one offer and, the, and that offer was to Stefano um, and we're thrilled to have him in place. So is the sport. I think he's been unanimously given the vote of confidence. I can't think of anyone who doesn't think he's going to be brilliant. What's job number one for him when he gets here in January? I think it's always to continue to, you know, to, to improve the sport on the track. And I, again, it's the things we've talked about. Competition, action, the underdog having a chance to win and making it a healthier business for the teams in it. Because everything gets built around that. I think beyond that, it's also to have, you know, I think in these roles, there's always a balance of short term and long term. So short term, you've got 2020-22 coming with the new regulations, the new cars, that's important. But obviously, we've got longer term issues like sustainability, you know, challenges, the next generation engine. And I think that for a sport like us, it's tremendously important. We continue to to build on that and create a larger long term vision for the sport that it enables us to continue to grow and really fulfill our opportunity. So I, you know, I think it always starts. I mean, clearly, you know, the commercial side of the business, we've got to continue to grow. We've been doing a lot of things in the digital space that are critically important to the future, energizing the television broadcast, trying to energize the live events and the live event experience, you know, grow the sport through areas you know, like esports, podcasts, and the like, grow the sport geographically, so all those things. But, uh, you know, the foundation it's all built on is a great sport on the track that delivers, you know, what fans want and delivers it with a vision of, you know, sort of where, you know, not just short term, but long term, where the sport and the track goes and what are the things that define it. You mentioned TV. You've had a career really in TV, haven't you? I just wanted to ask you about pay TV versus free to air. Do you feel that the sport has got the balance right at the minute? Well, in many ways, we're dealing with, you know, a TV world that is the world they came from that is clearly changing. And, you know, in many ways, those changes are larger than us. So we've got to play into, you know, those changes. I mean, we love reach. We want to reach as many fans as possible. Um, And historically, people have said that means free TV. 
the reality for 30, anybody over, under the age of 30, and probably maybe even older, reach is increasingly, you know, means a digital platform. Um, they're not watching TV screens, you know, on a wall anymore. They're watching various digital platforms and engaging with sports, you know, through those vehicles. So I think clearly free TV has an array of challenges today and the digital world that's evolving, um, as does pay TV, which is, you know, in many places maturing. And you see these digital players becoming bigger and bigger forces. And so I think we have to be part of that media landscape and figure out how do we deal with that media landscape and not, you know, not a lot of times people wish, say, I wish the world was frozen in, you know, the year 2000. It's not. And we've got to figure out how do we, you know, appeal and engage, you know, our fans in the media world that is, you know, that is clearly evolving as we go forward. It's apt that we're talking about this now because the Eiffel Grand Prix on Sunday was available in certain territories on YouTube, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah. And I think... It's a classic example of what you're talking about. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, I mean, clearly, you know, the trend will be you're going to continue to have those sorts of digital experiences be a bigger part of our future. Um, Obviously, something like Drive to Survive on Netflix, you know, a significant success for us in another way that you can engage fans and and connect with fans, particularly non-traditional fans. Our historic TV partners are still critical and they, you know, still are the backbone of how fans will follow live events. And so we do want to continue to work with them. But again, I think we have to be realistic and recognize you know, the changes that are going on in the media space and, and the challenges that exist, you know, free TV, pay TV and growth of digital and how that's going to change and how viewing patterns and viewing experiences, you know, are changing in the broader world. Do you think we'll ever get to the point where Formula One produces everything in-house? Is, is that the goal with F1 TV? The goal of F1 TV is to create, or create something that is a richer, deeper experience we are a sport that is data-rich, technology-rich, and we have passionate fans out there who really want something special. So I think it's taking advantage of digital technologies that let us create that experience for them. I mean, realistically, on the broader question of producing television, I mean, I mean, today we we do produce the broadcast. I mean, we, the broadcast is our our production. You know, clearly our television partners bring various enhancements to it. Um, somebody, somebody like Sky obviously brings a lot to it where they have a dedicated channel to Formula One. You know, so not just you know, the anchors and the shoulder programming, but, you know, uh, but an array of content that is created around it. So I think we'll always have partners that are enhancing, but the core product you know, will be from us. I think if you mean, are we, always, are we going to ultimately be delivering content directly to consumers, not through some traditional you know, free pay digital player. I don't think that um, certainly in the, you know, in the short to medium term I see is a pattern. I think we'll continue to work with the various players in, that exist as platforms in, that, um, in, in the media space. And I think something like F1 TV is really more um, at something on top for a fan who wants, again, uh, a rich experience. To keep the partners. Yeah, I think there is clearly... Um, you know, platforms that are able to put together a broad range of content, not just a single sport, um, you know, or, you know, a more narrow, you know, set of channels. I mean, you know, you look at the breadth of content that exists, um, whether it's on a, you know, a pay platform, you know, or a digital platform. I mean, somebody like Netflix obviously has 
you know, content that exists from, you know, series, comedies, dramas, movies, documentaries, um, you know, talk shows, um, you know, sports-related content like ours. Um, so there's a broad range that attracts a, you know, a wide number of fans, you know, into it, not just a single sport, um, you know, channel, I think is really a more targeted add-on, not the core experience, you know, for fans. You mentioned Drive to Survive, the Netflix series. Have you enjoyed it? Have you enjoyed the two seasons? Yeah, it's actually great. I mean, you know, even though I go to every race, I mean, I don't actually, you know, there are elements of it. And I certainly would know a number of the backstories, you know, at 10,000 feet. They've done a wonderful job of being able to, you know, sort of um, get under the covers and, you know, and give you, a, you know, a real inside, you know, inside look into, uh, you know, certainly, you know, what makes the sport special. You know how they embed themselves in with a team. I've heard some fans saying, when are they going to embed themselves with you at a Grand Prix so they can get the real behind-the-scenes look at what you do? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's about the sport. I mean, I think what we are doing is making sure we provide a platform for the sport. And to me, the sport is the teams and the drivers, not the business people behind it. So, you know, I think the focus, you know, should really be you know, where it is. I mean, the drivers are the biggest heroes, the teams are the teams that compete on the track. And what you're trying to really do is get, you know, an understanding and an insights to the personalities and dynamics that, you know, go on, you know, behind the competition on a track. Can we talk about the spectacle a little bit now? Has Mercedes domination been good or bad for the sport? I think Mercedes deserves enormous credit for their achievements. And, uh, the run they've had is um, is a you know, really again is a testament to the skill and talent of you know that team you know from you know Toto and Lewis and Valtteri all the way you know down credit to them. But you don't want you know a single team dominating. I don't think you ever want a single team dominating in the way that uh, Mercedes had dominated because it makes it some degree. It takes away the unpredictability, the unknown. If you expect Mercedes is going to win and they do, in fact, win every race, that's, you know, clearly, you know, that level of predictability is not what you'd really like. Sports is all about drama, emotion, um, and those things come out of uh, unexpected places. And so, you know, I think you want to get to a place where, you know, not full parity. I think actually having favorites and underdogs is actually a good thing um, because it makes it more special when the underdog wins. But the underdog has to win in a once in a while. And then I think for us, you know, we have uh, gotten to a place, you know, where, you know, not just Mercedes at the top and then, you know, really three teams, the domination of three teams for competition on the track is not the balance you'd like to have. So, again, I don't think you ever look to or aspire to necessarily have to get the parity, but you need to have the opportunity, you know, for underdogs to win. Before we continue with Chase, I need you to listen up because today I have a new Manscaped product alert. Manscaped just released, wait for it, the Weed Whacker. It's a nose and ear hair trimmer and I'm not accusing you of looking like Chewbacca. But if you need a little bit of help in this department, the Manscaped Weed Whacker is a game changer, apparently. This nose and ear hair trimmer provides proprietary skin-safe technology, which helps prevent nicks, snags, and all that kind of stuff in those kind of places. It uses a 9,000 RPM motor-powered 360-degree rotary dual-blade system, and it's the only nose hair trimmer on the market with a powerful and rechargeable lithium-ion battery that lasts up to 90 minutes. By the way, I don't think you're expected to use that battery life in one sitting. Its intelligently contoured design enhances the trimming experience. And yes, 
you will get a replaceable blade every three months to keep your weed whacking time clean, enjoyable and hygienic. So throw away those tweezers and upgrade your grooming routine with the Weed Whacker. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code GRID at manscaped.com. That's 20% off and free shipping at manscaped.com and use the code GRID. What are you waiting for? I think it's time to whack some weeds. Right, let's get back to Chase. The idea of a qualifying race, it's been mooted and discussed a lot this year. Where do you stand on that? Or a race to set the grid, just to be clear. I think what we need to be is make sure we have, we're open to and have honest discussions about ways to make the sport better. And, you know, I've lived mostly in my prior role, you know, while I was at Fox through the media, through many sports. I mean, we dealt with most of them. And most sports, when, you, when they've talked about changes, the hardcore fans, you know, resist change. You know, they want the sport. So Major League Baseball went ahead and designated, hey, no, probably U.S. sports better. Major League Baseball wants a designated hitter. Everybody didn't like it. Every, the NBA put in a three-point line. You know, um, the hardcores didn't like it. Um, you added teams to playoffs. So you used to just have, you know, the two league champions playing the World Series now. You know, now you have, you know, this year they had 16 teams, you know, compete. And really in most of those cases, you know, not all, but I'd say in most cases, those changes have ended up being viewed as positive, you know, bringing fresh energy, you know, bringing a fresh perspective. I think you have to be careful um, that you don't gimmick up the sport, you know, that you are recognizing the importance of history um, and the importance of what has made this sport special, but not let that become a straitjacket that doesn't enable you to, to consider um, changes that may truly enhance the sport for fans. I think that a decision like the specific one about, you know, a qualifying race, um, I think is a group decision. I mean, I think what we need to do, and I think from my perspective, we're not going to dictate that. You know, it's tee it up, talk about the pros and cons, have done the appropriate homework to what, you know, you know what we think, again, you know, are the benefits and, um, and issues with it, and have an honest discussion with everybody. And again, that's where it's important to come back to having a spirit of partnership and not just look at it. Is this good or bad for me as a team, as opposed to is this good or bad for the sport? And make an intelligent, you know, make it an, an informed judgment about, you know, is this a decision, you know, that, uh, um, that we feel, you know, is respectful to the sport, while maybe not part of its history, but one, respectful to the sport, but will engage and create greater answers for fans. Because at the end of the day, that's what this is all about. I mean, you, ra you race and you compete in sports for fans. You're not doing it, you know, yes, the individuals in it get, you know, certainly great you know, rewards out of, you know, their success. But at the end of the day, the purpose is to create, you know, a memorable, you know, great experience for fans. And if this is something, and not every fan is ever going to like it, so you're never going to get to 100%. So it's where, why we have to make the judgment. Is it something that, um, again, we think on balance you know, will improve, improve the sport? And I guess you don't have to do it at every race either. No, I mean, I think, you know, I think we probably would recognize, I mean, there are probably some things you... You know, there's some changes you will do structurally. I mean, obviously, we're, you know, we're making change to the regulations in 2022 that will be across the board. But um, a change like that, I think, you know, you clearly can. And I think to the degree we're talking about it, it would be at a limited number of races to see how it, um, you know, see how it plays out and what are the issues and pros and cons. Um, but I think you always have to be. I mean, I think, you know, we should be always challenging, again, without making it sound like we're sort of 
just throwing ideas against a wall. You know, we should always be trying to push ourselves to look at are there ways we can make um, the sport more interesting and exciting um, for fans. And we should be constantly pushing ourselves on that. Are you pushing for the a race like that in 2021? Pushing is the wrong phrase. I mean, I think it's sort of putting forth it as something with, again, the pros and cons of a concept like that and you know, get reaction from it. And you know, we've had uh, many ideas, you know, many things, not all of them, you know, we bring forward to a discussion, you know, with the FIA and all 10 teams. So some of them, I think we don't think probably ultimately pan out, but I think we're not, you know, I don't think pushing, we may be putting it on the table, um, you know, but to me, it's putting it on the table for discussion, you know, not to push it and see what the teams, see how the drivers, um, see what are the perspectives, you know, that come back. What feedback do you get from Ross on this, Ross Braun? Because he strikes me as a purist. Well, certainly, I mean, look, Ross, um, in, you know, in many ways is much closer and probably a much better, you know, you know much better position, you know, than me to try to you know, look at the pros and cons. I mean, I, I've been clear, I don't, you know, I'm a fan of the sport, but I certainly, you know, don't have anywhere near the in-depth, you know, expertise that somebody like Ross does. And I think what has been great about Ross is while he, you know, certainly, you know, has a, a long history in the sport and a, you know, an incredible track record, you know, that he is open to looking to it and does try and look at the sport, you know, with fresh eyes. To some degree, that's probably my role is help to push fresh perspectives. Um, and, uh, you know, and I think hopefully between us, you know, there's a decent balance of pushing things. And, you know, he's, uh, you know, he's one who obviously, you know, when I talk about, you know, how do you find that balance between, you know, respecting history yet not being bound by it? You know, he certainly knows the history in a way I don't, knows, you know, team's perspectives in a way I don't. Um, but I think equally, you know, recognizes the importance of um, continuing to improve the sport and continuing everything we can to make the sport better. While we're on the subject of Ross, what's the biggest thing you've learned from him? You know, I think what I learned from him, you know, probably the the insights, you know, first and foremost were, you know, sort of the you know, the, the challenges of dealing with the, I guess I'd call it the inner circle of the sport and the dynamics amongst the, you know, the teams you know, and the various players, you know, in the sport, because it is different than many other entities, you know, I've dealt with. And certainly Ross could provide a perspective when, you know, I'm getting a, a team principal or somebody putting forth a, an issue, a, you know, a thought, a proposal, what have you. I guess I don't, hopefully I'm not, you know, naive to, to, to always believe everything I'm told, but Ross certainly has a, a much deeper understanding of what are some of the dynamics, you know, and the like that uh, are behind, uh, you know, many of the, you know, issues that come up, you know, uh, in, in the inner circle of the sport. You've been in the inner circle now for four years. Can I take you back to Singapore 2016? I remember you arriving in the paddock with Bernie Eccleston. What what did you make of it all back then? At that point, um, it was yeah. There wasn't really enough to even get your hands around. I mean, we had signed the deal. I think the week before we hadn't taken control. So I mean, really, I didn't assume I didn't assume any responsibility because we weren't allowed to until January two thousand seventeen. And I think knew going in um, that. Uh, 
it was going to be, you know, us arriving was going to be a, a bit of a circus. Um, you know, Bernie had obviously run the sport, you know, forever. Uh, and that it, any change was going to be, be a complicated event that certainly had a fair amount of noise, you know, around it. I mean, I knew enough about, you know, the sport. So I don't think Singapore was, you know, that much surprised because that's mostly what it was, was at that point, you know, a media, you know, a media circus, you know, around it with everybody trying to find angles to play and, um, you know, and the like. Was that your first time in the Formula One paddock? No, I had gone to, before, you know, in the summer, went to uh, the Monaco race as uh, when we first were sort of engaged, you know, with Formula One, you know, met Bernie and um, Donald McKenzie there. But that was, that was the second, you know, you know, second race. And I know you've said that you're not somebody who likes to look back, but when you, when you look at the person you were back then, what was the biggest thing you had to learn? What would you tell your 62-year-old self? Um, you know, I think you had to learn. You had to learn for me, because I was an outsider coming in. You had to create an understanding, you know, with the players, you know, that are involved in this sport, not just the teams, but the promoters, the broadcasters, the sponsors. I mean, what you really, you know, in many ways, you know, what I feel like we sit at the center of sort of this circle you know, with you know, the better part of probably a hundred partners in you know varying roles. Obviously, some with very different engagement. Um, you, know, you know, some are big corporate entities, sponsors, and broadcasters. Some are obviously sort of the teams are obviously just focused on you know on the sport. But all those relationships, how they all exist, um, how you deal with them, who are the personalities? I mean, you know, so much of it is dealing with. Um, personalities when you get to teams and promoters, I guess, but, you know, to some degree also on some of the more commercial partnerships, you know, as well. Um, they're spread around the world. You know, there's a history with all of them. So it was really trying to understand who are the various partners you have in this large ecosystem? You know, what is the history, you know, with each of them? How did they get to where, you know, they are, you know, to, at that point in time? And how do you you know, how do you take it forward? I think we sort of knew what we wanted to do with the sport, but obviously to make that happen, you had to understand the landscape and understand, you know, the players. You can't just sort of, you know, you know be a bull in a china shop charging into it. You had to, you know, figure out who do you have to deal with and what are going to be the issues, you know, you had to deal with to, you know, to try to, you know, achieve your goals. Ron Dennis once described the Formula One paddock as the Piranha Club. <laughs> Do you agree with him? Um, I think that's probably a little harsh, but, you know, I think it is a, you know, I think there is, it is a divide and conquer, and certainly to some degree, um, everybody always looking to take advantage of, you know, the other guy. And so I think there, there is an element, certainly, of it that I think more than most sports, you know, most sports have a competitive dynamic because that's what they are. But I do think Formula One has an extra edge to it um, in terms of how there's a constant posturing, positioning, you know, trying to get an edge, trying to get an angle, you know, trying to find, you know, some way to, you know, to position, you know, yourself um, as uh, at the expense of others. So I think there is a, you know, certainly a unique, unique dynamic to the sport. And when you've worked as closely as you have with Rupert Murdoch. How does that prepare you for a sport like this? What is different um, 
you know, about this sport is you really have to sort of, I don't, I never think of it and sort of like back to go back to the Concord Agreement. And historically, it sort of felt like it was Formula One against the teams, you know, and ultimately we wanted to get to one of the places was a, an agreement that we thought was fair to everybody, including Formula One. But it wasn't, you know, sort of at the expense of the teams. I think we, it was trying to get to a, because I think ultimately our success is really going to be based on successful growth of the sport, which I think requires a sense of fairness, you know, amongst all the players in it. Not taking advantage of parties, but ultimately trying to make judgments, you know, about what is fair. When I was at Fox, you know, we were much more, you know, trying to grow Fox to some degree, you know, competing with others. But there wasn't the same sense of sort of who were the partners that were tied into what you were going to achieve. You know, yes, you had relationships that were outside, but it was much more of a, you know, looking solely through your lens and what you controlled. You know, and I think in this place, we want to make sure we look at it, you know, through both whether it's a team's perspective or a promoter's perspective you know, that we are creating good partnerships that are fair partnerships. We want to make sure they're fair to us, but ultimately they're healthy for the sport. Because um, if they're not, then I think you're going to create frictions and tensions. And I think some of that existed in the past, that you've got to create a vision that everybody feels they can win. I mean, if you don't, if you're not creating win-win scenarios, I think ultimately you're going to be worse off for it. And I think this sport in the past had a bit too much of making one plus one equals one and a half and fighting over who lost the half as opposed to making one plus one equal three and figuring out how do you share the extra one. And I think that mindset requires a win-win proposition that, yes, there will still be, you know, there'll still be tensions and frictions about how do you share that. But if you're sharing success, it's a much healthier environment, you know, than sort of uh, trying to fight over who takes the pain. Can I ask you a quick question on Rupert Murdoch? What was he like to work with and what did you learn from him? First, it was great. I mean, and I still, um, I'm still on the board of Fox, so I still have the, I mean, I'll call it the privilege and pleasure of talking to Rupert and engaging with Rupert on uh, both the business world as well as on a, on a personal level. You know, I think what Rupert, to me, what stands out most, and I joined Fox shortly after he bought Fox, and uh, was an individual who was able to sort of cut through the clutter, see opportunities. And usually to see an opportunity, you don't find it in all the details. You're sort of able to cut through all the clutter and see Sky, you know, here when he made the bet, you know, that there was an appetite for more choice and more quality in content and more energy and sort of a belief behind his conviction. With Fox News, a view in the United States, that there was a large segment of the U.S. population that wasn't finding a news service, you know, that spoke to them. It is a legitimate news service, but still, you know, spoke to them. You know, in some degree, in a lot of places, people, you know, he made bets when the Fox network, everybody thought being a fourth network was crazy. And yet, I think what he saw was three networks that had gotten old and bureaucratic, and it was an opportunity for somebody to be nimble and come in and know, and make some bets. Um, likewise in sports, when, you know, we took the NFL from CBS, you know, Fox, we paid an amount that, again, everybody probably thought was crazy and it became the backbone, you know, for not just the sports business, but the overall television business. So I think he, he had the vision to sort of, you know, see those opportunities and then the courage, because usually 
those sort of opportunities are very tough to take on when you're trying to build, be a fourth network. When we launched Fox News, everybody said, we have CNN, we don't need another you know, news network. Usually the first year or two, things are not working out, things are tough, and you have to have the courage of your conviction. You know, you gotta be, you also have the agility to make the changes you need to change, but fight through the tough times to come out the other side. And I think almost every one of those bets, you could probably say in two years in, you know, would have been whatever the original plan was, it would have been worse than the original plan. By the time you got to the third or fourth year, you had turned it around, but you had to fight through the tough times and building businesses is tough. Was he surprised when you told him that you were taking on Formula One? No, because I, I had already announced that I was going to step down from my executive responsibilities at Fox, and I'd stayed on, agreed to stay on for a year in a transition period. And Rupert's sons, James and Lachlan, were assuming responsibilities. So when I took this on, it was, I was actually stepping away from my executive responsibility, continuing on the board in that capacity. And I think he, he knew that uh, I've always enjoyed the sports world. And I'd said to him in terms of what I, I felt at Fox, I had had my, I guess what I'd call traditional career. Um, and I'll, I'm old enough now, I'm in my late 60s, you know, that uh, if I was going to do something, um, and I probably wasn't going to go home for lunch every day or my wife would have a heart attack. But if I was going to do something, I wanted it to be different. I wanted it to be interesting. And I wanted it to be something where I thought you could make a difference. You could be successful. Because usually, above all else, that's what makes things enjoyable and worthwhile um, is success. I mean, usually it's hard work. Everybody was saying you're having fun. And I say, you know, usually um, it's not fun. You know, it can be rewarding because you take on challenges. But what makes it rewarding is being successful. <laughs> um, now, you're not successful in everything you do, but... I guess there'll always be successes and failures, but on balance to be successful. And I think this opportunity certainly was different, <laughs> certainly was interesting. And we thought there was a real opportunity. Bernie deserves a lot of credit, what was built over many decades. But, you know, I think in the five to 10 years before we came in, I don't think the sport had been doing the things it needed to do in today's world to continue to grow and take advantage of its opportunity. Did Rupert look at Formula One a few years back? At Fox, there was uh, some engagement back in 2011-12, and there was discussions. I mean, I wasn't part of them because I was clear. I told Rupert that I was considering this, but when Liberty was buying this, Fox and Sky were also parties that were considering it. And again, I didn't want any visibility, you know, too, because, you know, I had been clear with Fox that I was in discussions with Liberty, you know, if this went through. So I think in a couple of times, there were a couple of places where Fox, and I don't know what degree Fox and Sky engaged with Formula One. I can't tell you how far the specifics around it in the more recent one when Liberty was buying it. Chase, can I ask you about the fans now? Um, because I have been at racetracks where, and I've watched you arrive or leave at a track, I'm obviously talking last year, but the fans, when they see you, chase after you they want their <laughs> selfies with you and just tell us about the fans the fans are, are great you know realistically the real heroes of this sport are the lewis hamiltons and you know the drivers and the people that compete on the track so in some ways i always feel a little awkward because you know i think all i'm trying to do is help you know provide the best platform 
possible for it. I'm not really doing what you know the people with you know unique talent do, making the sport what is special. I'm trying to provide an opportunity for fans to engage with it. But I think you always want to appreciate them. I mean, I think they're what this is all about, and I think that is sort of always challenge one, whether it's you know the live experience or the experience of a fan sitting in their living room or the experience of a fan walking around with an iPhone and trying to get an update or trying to provide a deeper look, as we talked about on Drive to Survive or things like that, for fans to engage with the sport and what makes the sport special. So heading back to Connecticut this winter, You've already said that you're not going to be that you're not the sort of guy who's going to be home for lunch every day. <laughs> Otherwise, wife Wendy might go. Any long term goals? What's the plan going forward? I'm too old uh, for long term goals. And uh, God bless the uh, individuals you know, like uh, Bernie, who did this job, you know, as long as he did. You know, I hope to remain active. Um, I don't you know, again, at this point in my life, I don't have plans. And I guess I've always felt all in on what I'm doing until I'm not doing. So I'm not even really going to try and think about it, you know, until come January. You're still going to have one hand on the tiller with, yeah, no, with I, Stefano, is that? Yes. Yeah. So I will continue as a non-executive chairman. And I really have defined, you know, been clear with Stefano and, and Liberty that I think my role is to be helpful without being in the way. I don't have an ego that means I'm going to have to, you know, insert myself into something. You know, I think, again, Stefano brings an enormous amount of him. Anyways, he knows more about the sport than I do, even after my four years. So where I can help him, I will help him. But that's what I view, you know, my role is to help, help without being a hindrance. And, you know, I think we'll figure that out. Again, I think it'll be comfortable. I mean, Stefano and I know each other, so we don't have to go through a, a process of figuring out, you know, a, a comfort zone of working with Adrian. And I've got a call with Stefano tonight just to catch up on things. So I'm going to get him, hopefully provide him enough information and, and an opportunity to get up to speed even before January 1st. But I think Stefano, it's why he's such a great choice for this, you know, again, comes into this with such even keel, level-headed experience, respect, that I think he seems very open and wanting, you know, to gain whatever insights he can um, and whatever thoughts he can. But I think equally has strong views already, and I think will be quite proactive in taking charge. So I think we'll figure out what does being helpful mean. What about other hobbies, Chase? You're a Yankees fan. I think we've established that. You played rugby when you were at Harvard. Yeah, I can't claim I play rugby anymore. So, um, <laughs> but uh, this sport is not provided for many hobbies. Whether it's the intensity of what we've had to deal with, you know, the challenge of getting up to speed in a sport with players I didn't know that well. It is a sport that frequently is seven days, so you can go weeks on end without, you know, I feel like I have a Monday through Thursday job and a Friday through Sunday job, and you travel back and forth you know, between being at a track and, and dealing with more the business side of the sport on Monday through Thursday, although certainly there are business sides of it, you know, at the tracks. You know, I would end up saying, I mean, I, I play golf, have a few activities like uh, like that, although this job has not been good for my golf, you know, so so, um, so I've played very little. My business activities have uh, probably been my primary hobby, you know. I guess I've generally usually all in in what I'm doing. My wife has always said to me, why don't you just keep doing it and do it at 80%? And I guess my view has always, you know, been that that's wrong. I mean, I think, you're, you know, you should be in, you know, for 100% or move on. I've always been one who has sort of been all in, you know, with my responsibilities. What's your golf handicap, can I ask? Um, well, it's probably, I'm probably not playing. Well, perhaps what a, was your golf handicap? It really is, uh, it's about a, about a 14, but... Uh, um, Very but, respectable. Uh, 
And are you a good driver? Well, I'm not a competitive driver. Um, Have you ever been, been on track? Uh, yes. Not behind the wheel. So I've been on the track. I've been on the track a number of times in various, they've all been in the two-seaters. Probably the most high speed I went on a track was happened to be in Monza when Ferrari had one of their days where individuals who own, you know, old Formula One cars and um, and there's a Ferrari, I think it was an FXXK. Proper and car, so that, that proper is, car, very fast. Yes, it is a two-seater and they had ex-Formula One drivers. So it was a ex-Formula One driver that drove. We did a few laps at you know, not full speed, but probably pretty close to it. He was pointing out he was braking earlier and you know, not quite hitting top speed. But, uh, but yeah, I've had a couple of opportunities, but I've never driven around. It's funny, isn't it? When, you, when you've had that experience as a passenger, it doesn't half make you, your respect for the, for the drivers themselves goes up, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, in those sort of cars around that, I mean, you're you feel continually like the car's just going to go tumbling down, the, you know, down the track. I mean, because it's it's a sensation, you know, you just wouldn't have driving on you know streets, even you know even empty streets. Uh, the experience is unique, but in all honesty, I'd have that respect just from watching what they do. I mean, you know, I mean, you know, in some ways, I have the opportunity to go out in some places and stand on a corner in a track. Um, there was a corner in Monaco. Ross took me to the first time I went to Monaco. Um, after we I bought it, it and there at was the a swimming pool was it by the swimming pool so i don't remember what's but there's this sort of almost s turn and then they come down like from the tunnel down that long straight and then they're sort of like an s turn so they like two turns and they have to be doing them blind because you're going they're too fast to even you know um to even direction. see what to see what's coming so you have to be doing it purely off instinct at that speed you know what they do speaks for itself and you know all you have to do is watch it Chase, thank you so much for your time. It's been great to chat. Appreciate it. Be well, Tom. Well, we better watch out for Chase on the Seniors Golf Tour. But as he says, he's still very much going to be involved in the sport going forward. And I think his steady hand will be welcomed by all parties. But what a great chat. Chase's perspective as a relative newcomer to Formula One is a fascinating one. And the changes he's made reflect that. He doesn't claim to know a heap about the history of the sport, but he knows a lot about what makes a good business in sport. And there's no doubt he's leaving Formula One in a better place than he found it. The Piranha Club, it appears not to be. Chase, many thanks for your time. It was great to catch up. Well, that's almost it for another week. But before we go, let's dive into that virtual mailbag to see what you've been saying about last week's show with Sebastian Vettel. Lots of you got in touch and I've chosen four messages to read out. First, this one from Ash Miller. This week's podcast just cemented to me how incredibly insightful, introspective, likeable and wise Sebastian Vettel is and has become. His humility, openly honest self-analysis and transparent love of his sport is beautifully infectious. And how about this one from Psych BSC? It was the first time I was listening to this podcast, but I couldn't ignore Seb being your guest. How normal and down-to-earth can somebody be who's won the World Drivers' Championship four times and earned a lot of money while driving an F1 car? Wish he would have spoken way more to you. Thank you. And this one from Michael Conroy. A lovely conversation. I found myself not as keenly watching Formula One during the years Seb dominated, but he comes across as a really likeable and thought-provoking character. Hope he stays in F1 for a while longer and gets back to the top of the podium. 
And finally, I love this one from Robbie Harry123, who says, Look, I don't know if it'll ever happen, but as a student of physics, I always wanted to get into Formula One in some capacity. But after listening to Zach last week and Seb this week, they just seem like two normal people that did it. Why can't that be me? Well, Robbie, it can be you. Go for it. But thanks to all of you who got in touch. I'm sorry I couldn't read out more messages, but I'd be here for a week if I tried to. And remember, I'm at Tom Clarkson F1 on Twitter, or you can use the hashtag F1 Beyond the Grid. Thanks for listening. Beyond the Grid is produced by F1 in association with Audio Boom. Until next time, keep it flat out.